constantly unconcerned, calm and unruffled. A bit like this. Maybe you've come across that idea. And if you have, I hope you realize that it's a false idea. Neither Jesus nor the Apostle Paul were like that. They were men who had strong desires and emotions, and they let them show. So we can start by saying that this is not the ideal. And this evening we're going to think about the question, what kind of desires and emotions should characterize the servant of God? Last week we learned from Paul what it means to be a genuine servant of God. And this evening he helps us to understand the desires and emotions of a genuine servant. Our passage begins at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17 and we'll go through to the end of chapter 3. In the church Bible that's page 1187. But, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is God's word. The opening verses of this passage show us 
that a genuine servant is deeply concerned about God's people. I don't know if you noticed all the ways that Paul expressed his concern. Look at the way he puts it in chapter 2, verse 17. He says he was torn away from them, but only in body. His thoughts were still with them. He had an intense longing to be back with them in person. So he made every effort to get back to them. You may remember what Paul said before, or in fact what the book of Acts said about Paul. He had to leave Thessalonica quite abruptly because of his opponents there who started a riot. But he's making every effort to get back. And he says in verse 18, he would have been back already if Satan hadn't stopped him. He doesn't explain how Satan stopped him. But it is significant that Paul puts this down to Satan. Paul knows very well that God is sovereign. He knows that ultimately Satan himself is under God's authority. But he knows too that Satan still works to oppose God and God's servants. Paul realizes the Christian life is in one sense a struggle against Satan. And I think this is helpful for us because we are people, aren't we, who believe in God's sovereignty. But when it comes to serving God, we must never use his sovereignty as an excuse for our own lack of urgency or concern. Satan is an active enemy who needs to be opposed. We are engaged in a fight. So it is right that we enjoy the peace with God Jesus has won for us. But we must never treat the Christian life like a stroll along the beach. Paul got worked up about the Christian life. He got worked up when he was separated from believers who needed his help. Don Carson says these verses show us Paul burning up inside to be with these believers. He is in agony out of his concern for their good. Sometimes maybe we're tempted to look down on others whose Christianity seems to be a lot of heat without very much light. In other words, they seem to be all enthusiasm, but they only have a very sketchy grasp of the truth. But as we look at Paul's example here, Maybe instead of looking down on those brothers and sisters, maybe we could be challenged and convicted about our own lack of enthusiasm and urgency and passion. And look what Paul says next in verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Doesn't that seem a remarkable thing for Paul to say? Wouldn't we expect him to say, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is my hope and my joy? Wouldn't we expect him to say, the grace I have received in Christ is what I'm going to glory in? And in fact, elsewhere, Paul does say those things. 
So what's going on here? Well, what Paul says here doesn't deny those other things. What we're seeing here is that Paul values Christ so much, he values God's grace so much, that he's not content just to receive it himself. He wants God to be glorified as others receive his grace too. That's what Paul is pouring out his life for. When the book of Revelation describes the throne room of heaven, it tells us about elders around God's throne laying their crowns before the throne. I think that's the picture here too. These men and women in Thessalonica responded to Paul's preaching about Jesus. And Paul sees them now as a precious crown. But it's not a crown that Paul is intending to wear himself. It's a crown that he wants to lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus when he comes. These believers are the gift Paul is going to give his king. It's no wonder he's so concerned about them and urgent and passionate to see them. A genuine servant is deeply concerned about God's people. Is that true of us? Or do we have a take it or leave it attitude to God's people? Are we detached and a bit disinterested when it comes to God's people? If we are, let's ask God to give us some of Paul's passion for the church. And if we have a tendency to feel maybe a little proud because of our grasp of the truth, let's ask God for a bit more heat to go along with the light that we have. Paul has shown us what we should be concerned about. And now alongside that, he lets us know what we should not be concerned about. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, a genuine servant is unconcerned about trials and persecution. Look at those verses again. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. You notice that even as Paul continues to talk about how unsettled he is, he's telling the Thessalonians not to be unsettled. But we're not seeing a double standard here from Paul. The point is there are some things Christians should be unsettled about and some that we shouldn't. Paul says that when he couldn't go immediately to Thessalonica himself, he sent Timothy. And Timothy's job there was to strengthen and encourage them in their faith so they wouldn't be unsettled by the trials they're going through. The word that's translated unsettled was originally used of a tail being wagged by a dog. 
And when Paul uses it here, the sense is something like, so that you would not be agitated or flung around emotionally by these trials. Paul has already told us in chapter 2 what trials he has in mind. He's talking about persecution. Persecution specifically that comes to them because of their faith in Jesus. Their allegiance to Jesus has brought physical and legal and social trouble down on their heads. But Paul says here in verse 3, I don't want you to be unsettled by those things. I don't want you to go to pieces emotionally or cave in spiritually because of them. Why? Because, verse 3, you know quite well that we were destined for them. I kept telling you that while I was with you. Paul is just passing on Jesus' teaching here. This was a point Jesus often made to his disciples. Trials are normal for Christians. A trial-free Christian life is like a square circle. It doesn't exist. One writer says, Paul is not thinking here of a period of persecution that will pass and then the church will return to normality. No, normality is persecution for the church. Maybe we hear this and we think, okay, I can see that. And maybe it helps a little bit to know that trials are inevitable. But it really only helps a little bit. How am I expected really to be unconcerned in my trials? How do I avoid really being unsettled by them? I think the key here is the word destined. That word tells us two things about the trials that we face because of our faith in Jesus. First, they are not random. It's true that Paul has mentioned Satan in this passage. Paul knows that Christian life is a call to battle. But when Paul faces circumstances that he can do nothing about... Circumstances like trials and persecution, when he's on the receiving end of those things, he has learnt to trust in the wise purposes of God. He has learnt to rest in the truth that God is fully in control and fully good. The God of the Bible is never in the dark, he's never taken by surprise. And here Paul says to these believers, You were destined for these trials you're going through. But you weren't destined by some blind fate. You were destined by your loving Heavenly Father. And please don't misunderstand here. No one can truly enjoy trials or persecution. If we did, they wouldn't be trials. But as we learn to trust God's wisdom, we can be unconcerned about them. Deep down inside in our soul. We can be confident deep down that God's plan is not derailed by those things that happen to us. However much pain and discomfort they are causing us on the surface. And that leads us to understand something else. 
The trials we face are not random and they're not just personal. What I mean is this. It's correct that God uses our personal suffering for our personal good. He uses it to help us grow more like Christ, to strengthen our dependence on Christ. Suffering can be used to make us treasure Christ more than anything else. That's all true. But there's more truth for us to see. Your trials are not just personal. They're not just part of God's plan to change you or me. They're part of his plans to change the cosmos. Next week at 59 minutes, we're going to think about the truth that history is going somewhere. God is moving history to the day when all things in heaven and earth will be brought together under Christ. And for Christ's church, the pathway to that destination leads through trial and persecution. When Jesus was on earth, his pathway to exaltation led through suffering. Before he was exalted to the throne in heaven, he had to go through the ordeal of the cross. In fact, the book of Hebrews goes as far as to say Christ was made perfect through suffering. Meaning that God the Father brought Jesus to the position he had for him through suffering. Jesus is now fully qualified to be our mediator. He earned that position by coming to earth and dying for us. And the message of the New Testament again and again is that Christ's church, as it follows Christ, must follow him on the path through suffering to exaltation. So the point is, when you and I suffer, we don't just suffer as individuals. We suffer as members of Christ's church. The church that is being made perfect through suffering. We suffer as part of the church that will one day sit next to Jesus as his perfected bride at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We were all, a lot of us were at a wedding a couple of weeks ago. According to the book of Revelation, there is an even greater wedding supper ahead for Christ's church. And our individual suffering is a part of something big and significant and eternal. Our trials are bringing us closer to the future God has prepared for Christ's church. They don't earn us a place in heaven. Jesus has already done that. But the church's trials prepare the church for heaven. Now Paul knows very well, and we know very well, that it's a real challenge for us to see things this way. We are tempted probably every day, to believe other things whenever we face trials. Maybe that God has given up, that he's been caught by surprise. And if we give in to those temptations, we might end up giving up on the Christian life. I think that's what's behind verse 5. At the end of the verse, Paul says he sent Timothy to Thessalonica because I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. 
What he means is, I was worried that you would have been tempted and gave in to the temptation. And surely the temptation he has in mind is the temptation to fall to pieces during the trials. To lose their faith in God during times of persecution. Paul knows that's part of the tempter's strategy. Satan doesn't just tempt us to do sinful things. He tempts us to doubt God's goodness and power. And wasn't that the original temptation back in Genesis chapter 3? And Paul's great concern is that the Thessalonians would give in to this temptation. But he was very glad to hear good news from Timothy in verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? A genuine servant is encouraged by evidence of faith and love among God's people. Verse 6 says that Timothy brought good news. Now Paul normally uses that word to talk about the good news about Jesus. So it's normally translated gospel. But the good news Paul is talking about here is the faith and love of the Thessalonians. Their faith in God and their love for one another is holding up, Paul has discovered, even in the midst of their trials and persecutions. And Paul's choice of words gives us a sense of just how encouraging that is to him. In fact, he's encouraged, he says, even as he's going through distress and persecution himself. Then in verse 8, he says something else that's remarkable. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Sometimes we use the expression, this is the life, or this is living. Usually when we say that, we're sitting somewhere comfortable and we're eating or drinking something expensive. But whenever Paul says, this is the life, he's explaining how he feels when he hears about the faith and love of the Thessalonians. That news fills Paul with energy and strength. It juices him up. It proves to Paul all over again that God is at work, keeping his promises and unfolding his plan. As I looked at this, I realized one of the things I need to do better is to bring regular news to you of the faith and love of God's people in other places. News of how they're standing firm in the Lord. Yesterday, some of us were at the men's convention and we heard, among other things, about the church in Egypt. One of the things that stuck out to me was a a prayer weekend 
attended by 50,000 Christians. It's easy to get so focused on our own situation that we miss out on the encouragement we could have from hearing about God's work in other places. So from now on, we'll try to do more of that. And of course, you can also do it yourself by signing up to get news directly from Christian organizations and by reading Christian biographies. And we don't always need to go to other places. I heard last week about a church which has a slot in their service every week so that the church can hear news about what God is doing in their church family. Sometimes we can get encouraging news from the row in front of us or behind us. So let's ask the people sitting in front of us and behind us. And don't run away if they end up telling you about a difficulty they're having. There's one thing that we need to be clear on here. This encouragement that Paul is receiving, it's not separate from the encouragement he receives from God. In other words, it's not the case that Paul turns to God and God builds him up. And then Paul looks for encouraging news elsewhere so he can make up for what was lacking in God's encouragement. No, as far as Paul is concerned, all of it comes from God. Look again how he puts it in verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? When Paul hears encouraging news, he takes that news to God and he thanks God for what God is doing. Now, it would be a mistake for us to think Paul's only interested in other Christians because of the encouragement he can get from them. In fact, the reason he's so encouraged to hear about them standing firm in the Lord is because he desperately wants them to stand firm and grow. If Paul didn't have that concern to begin with, he wouldn't be so excited when he gets good news about them. And in the final verses of our passage, Paul models this truth. The truth that a genuine servant longs that others will be found acceptable to God when Christ returns. Look at verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Even though Timothy has brought good news from Thessalonica, Paul is still chomping at the bit to get back there again. And the reason, he says in verse 10, is that he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. What does he mean? One writer says that it's very hard for us to imagine the magnitude of the change in beliefs and values that these people went through. They were brought up in a pagan society and they have become Christians. Christian truth and the Christian life, those things are like a whole new world for men and women raised in a pagan culture. In fact, we're in the same situation today when someone comes to Jesus. 
And Paul knew very well that it was inadequate for him simply to tell these people about Jesus and have them pray a prayer of repentance and faith and then abandon them to figure out the rest for themselves. Paul realized that getting these people converted, that was only the beginning. They needed ongoing help to deepen their understanding and to put that understanding into practice. So Paul is praying night and day, he says, that God will give them the opportunity to go back and do that work in Thessalonica. But in the meantime, Paul isn't going to waste his time. He's going to do what he can to help them from a distance. In fact, chapters 4 and 5 are Paul's effort to supply what is lacking through his pen or his quill or whatever it was. In the rest of this letter, he's attempting to deepen their understanding of their faith and help them live out their faith. Paul is praying earnestly night and day. He's doing all he can to get to Thessalonica. And in the meantime, he's writing to these believers about how God's people are to think and live. Why? Why is he doing it? Because he longs that these men and women will be found acceptable to God when Christ returns. Verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. We could say that all Paul's prayers and teaching by letter and efforts to see these people, all of it comes from his desire to have them ready on the day when Christ comes to claim his people. Paul is not just working to see men and women make commitments to Christ. Commitments to Christ are wonderful. But Paul always has a long haul in his mind. He wants to see those who make commitments go on and finish the race. He wants to see them standing at his side on the last day. Sometimes we do a good job of praying earnestly for specific people to turn to Jesus and befriending those people. But let's keep that going after they turn to Jesus. There's a lifetime of endurance and growth that needs to happen after turning to Jesus. Let's take on the mindset that we're not just seeing people through to conversion. We're seeing them through actually until Christ returns, until they're delivered safely to him. Until that day, those brothers and sisters need our earnest prayers still. They need our companionship still. They need our help to grow in understanding and living out their faith. So don't take someone off your prayer list just because they've made a commitment to Christ. We started by saying the Christian life is not supposed to be like this. 
And hopefully by listening to Paul, we've got a sense of what should concern us and what shouldn't. What should encourage us and what should stir us up to action as Christians. And as he does so often in this particular letter, Paul has finished by bringing our attention back to the day that is to come. The day when Christ returns. We are to live and serve with that day in our minds. As God weaves the tapestry of history, he is weaving it all towards that day. Even our trials are bringing us closer to that day. And we're going to close with two songs that help us to fix our minds on the day when our Lord Jesus comes. We're going to sing, Let the Earth Resound with Songs of Praise. And then rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King.